chapter 11, and there's some really cool stuff in here. This is, I think, one of the better sections of Second Corinthians, and it gets into Paul's more direct exactly about what his concerns are for this church. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday together in your name. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for the family of God that we have been adopted into. Thank you for Christian fellowship. Thank you for the means of grace. And Lord, we pray for the flock that's scattered around the world. Pray for their well-being, that you bless them, keep them, and may they be fed with pure food, the milk of the word, that they might grow thereby. And we thank you for the opportunity that the Internet gives us to send the gospel out around the world. We pray that you would use that in a powerful way. We commit this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in chapter 11. I've got so, this is, I've got so much study material now. I had to, it won't fit on my clipboard. And this is only half of chapter 11. Thanks to the Logos Bible software. So I had to go to a, a different kind of way hauling around my material. There's so much of it. Let me read one through four. We won't get that far because this is very dense here again. But it says, I wish that you would bear with me a little in, in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, You received a different spirit you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You bear with this beautifully. Now, the reason I read through verse 4 is you can see there's irony going on here. It's very important to see the irony. The irony is starts in verse 1 when Paul asks if they bear with him, and then it comes back in verse 4 where he says, you bear with the false teachers. In other words, you're willing to tolerate somebody with a different gospel, a different spirit. Actually, later he'll say they're actually from Satan, these false teachers. And you'll bear with them. So how about bearing with me with the true gospel for a little bit here? And this is sort of the beginning of the full speech, which he doesn't really get more earnestly into until, I believe, about verse 15. No, verse 21. Uh, So Paul does not actually start speaking as a fool until verse 21. And in case you want to know what that's going to be, the way he speaks as a fool is by speaking like those false teachers do. That is, telling about his experiences, his sufferings, his visions, and and how great he is. And then he turns around and says, but I'm only going to boast in my weaknesses. I want you to know that all these things are true just so you realize that if you're going to listen to these guys, I have the same thing. But I'd rather boast in my weaknesses because the only thing that really matters is what God does through us and what God does through Paul. The work of God is what's going to do anybody any good. Um, Human experiences, human wisdom, human ability, human cleverness, human anything is not going to be what God uses to be his means of grace. Okay? And, you know, just in a uh, practical way, yeah, we, we can help one another solve problems, but we, grace comes from the Word, the Word, the Word of God. Okay, I wish that you would bear with me. Ironically used, I have a bunch of quotations here. It's ironically used. Garland says this, his comment in 11.16 reveals that some currently dismiss him as a fool, probably because his claim to authority over the congregation does not match his unimpressive appearance 
or demeanor. It doesn't have, does not have the aura of a leader who deserves admiration, but of a buffoon who deserves contempt. That's how he's portrayed by the false teachers. They have to find a way to discredit Paul so they can come in with their own message, which would be a different gospel and a different spirit. Now, the, they value wisdom. It's very clear that they value wisdom in a worldly way. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul had a play on words that uh, contrasted wisdom and foolishness? Well, let's let's look at that, (laughs) in case you don't remember that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he's using a lot of irony. The entire Corinthian correspondence contains a lot of irony, and you have to catch the irony. If Paul uses irony, and we don't know he's using irony, and we take him literally, then we get the opposite idea of what he's actually saying. Okay? Look at verse 21. Well, let's go back to verse 17 and just sort of set the stage again in Corinth. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. For the word of the cross... It's to those who are perishing foolishness. So he introduces all the way back in the first letter the idea of foolishness. But notice who it's, the word of the cross is foolishness to. <laughs> the ones perishing, right? It's foolishness to them. Now, if you remember the history in Acts, Paul had been in Athens just before he went to Corinth. He preached in Athens, then he preached in Corinth. When he preached in Athens he confronted the Athenian philosophers. And when he confronted them, he preached the resurrection from the dead. Christ, death, burial, resurrection. He preached that to them. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what was their response? Yeah, disdain. They they mocked him. They, They thought it was foolishness. So Paul had just preached to some worldly philosophers, some of the smartest people in, the, in that world that were there at Mars Hill, and had the experience of them mocking and believing his message of Christ crucified to be foolishness. So when Paul then goes to Corinth, he writes to them later saying that the cross of Christ and the word of the cross are foolishness to the perishing. But notice Verse 18, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Another important concept to keep in mind, in, in especially 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, when Paul's talking about power, he's not talking about the sort of things you would hear from some of these evangelists like Todd Bentley. Yeah. So when Paul's talking about power... He's not talking about meetings where unusual things happen that might be considered powerful, but he's talking about the power of God to save lost sinners. And that's why when he wrote to Romans, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. So later, when he says, when I confront those, I don't want to hear their words, I want to see their power, he's not saying that he's going to have a signs and wonder contest whether the false teachers had better ones than Paul had. He was saying he wants to see if their message saves people from their sins. Okay, And if their message doesn't save people from their sins, then it's just human wisdom. So now continuing on how he uses these terms here. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Showing us that the, that the type of debates that were common in the Greco-Roman world were in the background, and that's what was admired by these false teachers. Okay, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness ironically used, of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified 
to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God. How's he using that? Ironically, does Paul think God is literally foolish? No. <laughs> no. Okay, so you've got to catch the irony or you get just the opposite idea of what he's actually saying. God, what God says is considered foolish by the world, but it's the ultimate wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. It's the ultimate truth, the ultimate wisdom, but it's just considered that because the world is lost and it doesn't want to hear the truth. And the weakness of God, yet ironic, is stronger than men. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things and so on. So, with that idea, when Paul here says that he is going to take up a little foolishness, he's actually going to continue to defend the message of the gospel that only seems foolish to people whose minds are sullied. (laughs) Yeah, if your minds are worldly, then it seems foolishness. You just, just by your very nature, you don't receive the things of the Spirit of God because you're, it's foolishness to you. Yeah, that, that, you're right, Rich. It's, it's, it's part and parcel of the fallen human race that the cross seems like foolishness to the natural man. Now, as I've been saying for several, many years, this, what we're talking about right now ought to be the end of the secret-sensitive movement. It ought to be the end of it. It, just, it. it says right there, it's a waste of time trying to please the natural man with your message. Because the only way to do so is to preach something that's not from God. Okay, go ahead. What's so beautiful about his approach there was they were claiming, or the Greek world was claiming that it was foolish. So he's throwing his hooks in. And so now he's got them in, and then now he's um, showing to them the true gospel. Yeah, right. He's preaching the foolishness of God, which is actually the cross itself. And so and this also shows us that we don't have to, we should just avoid the fear of man. We don't have to please people that are lost. Okay? We don't want to purposely offend anybody, because Paul talks about that later. Give no offense to Jew or Greek or the church of God. But the message that we preach does offend them, and we can't help that. The cross, the cross, the cross. Just preach the cross, preach the cross. And Ryan had a really good sermon on that. It's probably, you can find it on our archives. I don't know how far back it is, but from 1 Corinthians 1. But his sermon was very straightforward, and he said this. You preach the gospel, and there's two responses to it. Most people think it's foolishness. But the called are the ones who listen. Okay? The called hear it. Because they they hear the inner call, which the Holy Spirit brings to the heart. The called hear it, and they respond in faith. And once they do, then you have your church. (laughs) The called that hear it become the called out ones who come together under the means of grace. Now, I don't know how it can be any simpler than that and almost impossible to get somebody in a seminary to believe. <laughs> and I had a first-person experience with that because the last four years I was in seminary, it was led by a person who was taking it into the seeker-sensitive mode. And I sat and contended about this in class after class after class, going back over the same basic simple material and I'm telling you, 90% of the students and hardly any of the professors got it. They could not get it because they're mesmerized by the, the glamour of success. No, 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 no. If we do, do it this way, we're going to have a really huge church and all these people are going to come in and become Christian. No, they have to become Christian first or they're not even part of the church. Now, you can come into a church and hear the gospel and be saved, but you're not really in the church until you're adopted into the family of God. But there's another concept on the foolishness side. You could have a church that has a purely orthodox message. You could have a a gospel that's being preached that's pure, but it's still foolishness in you, even if you acknowledge it, if you're not obeying it, inasmuch even the Corinthians aren't obeying, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
So for me to go to a church and listen to orthodoxy and assent to orthodoxy and fund orthodoxy with the uh, money that I would give and not live my life in accordance with orthodoxy, I'm the epitome of foolishness. And in fact, I'm more foolish than the people that are saying that's wrong. Okay. That, let's talk about dead orthodoxy. But I've been contemplating that idea. All right. Have you ever heard the term dead orthodoxy? Right. Most of the quietest or pietist things that have ever risen in church history arise because of the problem of dead orthodoxy. And I'll let me tell you what causes dead orthodoxy. Unbelief. Okay. The truth does not kill you. But having, but holding the truth because for sectarian reasons, okay, you know, let's say you, you grew up in a denomination and somebody says, what do you believe? And the answer is, whatever's in the back of the hymnal. I don't know what it is, but that's what I believe. Okay, I would affirm those things. I mean, that was me. I got up and swore an oath in front of the church when I was 12 years old that I believed orthodox doctrines that I believe the Bible, that I believe Jesus, that I believe the Gospel, and I believe none of it. But I was there because of the pressure of the adults, my parents, the adults in the church, saying, you're 12, you're a member, you're a Christian, now get up in front of everybody and swear to it. All right, what are you going to do? Okay, all right, I swear, I believe it all. But I did not. So that's dead orthodoxy. It's caused by unbelief. Yes. Yeah, but I would say that in our church here, what last week we heard a message on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is about you shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. Mm-hmm. So I have issues. I was sitting there thinking about what my life was and where I was taking the name of the Lord in vain. And I could say, oh well, and come to church again this Sunday and listen to another good message. But if my life didn't conform and I change my life and repent where it was bearing the name of the Lord in vain, then I am as foolish as what he's talking about. In fact, I'm more foolish because I'm hearing the right word and, you're not be- and I'm not believing because yeah. my belief is carried out in action. So yeah. you can have a dead orthodoxy. I mean, that's one kind of dead orthodoxy, having a Methodist church that has it in the back of the hymnal. I say it's a worse kind of dead orthodoxy to have a good message preached upstairs and have the congregation refuse to obey it. That would be very bad. I agree. But, but the Holy Spirit is what, you know, a true Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And when we hear the truth, well, we say two things when we hear the truth. Amen and oh my. <laughs> okay. And the old my is important because then we realize, oh man, uh, that's how I felt just studying about the Ten Commandments. I felt, oh my, I really need God to do something for me. But if you do feel that way, that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, and that's how you avoid being dead. Okay, I wish I could bear with my foolishness, but you are bearing with me. Now here, he starts later speaking as a fool. But see, they value wisdom in a worldly way which Paul called the message of the cross foolishness. So if they don't like the message of the cross, and they don't like the gospel Paul's preaching, and they don't like what he's saying, even though that's the means that God used to found that church there, then they're listening to other teachers who give them exactly what they want to hear. Our appetites determine what we're willing to listen to. Our, our appetites, our religious inclinations, motivations, affections, call them what they will. There are certain things that motivate us. And if you want to and love hearing the message of the cross, and it is something that you want God to use to change your life, and when you hear the truth that motivates you to change, that's what the church looks like. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. Um, I have one more cross-reference. Go ahead, Robert. You have the mic. 1 Corinthians 4.10 for this verse. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, 
but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Now, there, there again is irony, right? Is Paul really foolish, and are they really wise? Is Paul really weak, and are they really strong? Yeah, yeah. he's using irony because they think they're strong, they think they're wise, and they really aren't. And so they're making a negative assessment of Paul and his message, so he uses irony to rebuke them. Verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 11. By the way, the word um, foolishness here, chapter 1 uses a different word, Moros, moros, fool. Moron. I wonder if that's where our word moron comes from. I bet it does. Uh, you know, the Greek or Latin is a you know, basis of a lot of languages, including English. Some of it shows in English. I, can't, I bet you that's true. I bet you the moron comes from the Greek word moros, fool. So if we're, as a congregation, desiring to affiliate or to to invite in what the world perceives as foolish, so a gospel preacher wanting to associate with other people that have what's perceived as foolish by the world, then, you know, and having fellowship with them and having some kind of a commitment together, that's a good thing by God's eyes, but in the world's eyes it's looked as a gathering of fools. If we're seeking status and seeking to call in the wise people and affiliate ourselves with what the world calls wise, then that's a really bad thing here. Yeah, and and you just see you can see where congregations are going by who they invite in to speak. That's not it's not a wrong way to 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 judge things. You know, if they're bringing in, I mean, we hear this all the time. I get emails from people from all over saying, "I don't know. I think there's something wrong with my church. They're bringing in Brennan Manning." And I say, "Yeah, something is wrong with your church." That's true. You're not bringing. Tell them to bring in Mike Gendron. Okay, if you bring in Mike Gendron, you're going to hear the gospel preached to Catholics, telling them what the truth is and what's false about what they believe. You bring in Brennan Manning, you're going to get Catholicism warmed over for Protestants, so-called. All right. So, yeah. Who do you want to associate? Who do you want to listen to? The Corinthians wanted to listen to the sophists. The sophists. And these categories are important too. I've been rethinking everything I've taught over the last 15 years in light of, of categories that make more sense to me now than they did before. And the categories being spe- special revelation, general revelation, and secret or occult. The three types of knowledge that the Bible divides things into, according to Deuteronomy 29.29. Special revelation is everything God said. The only thing we know about God and about the spiritual world we live in and about spiritual things is what God said. Outside of what God said, we really don't know and we really cannot know. The spirit world is not accessible through ordinary means of learning things, like you would learn how to change a tire on a car or learn how a trade or things in general revelation. It's not even accessible other than through the occult, which is forbidden. And the occult is not reliable. The shamans are good at getting there. By the way, the article went out Thursday, so you, if you're on the mailing list, you'll be getting one that explains all of this. It's, it's, the categories are crucial, absolutely crucial categories. All right. Now, the only people in the world that have special revelation, all of God's special revelation, I should say, are Christians. I would affirm that Judaism has some of God's special revelation. To that degree, they have light. But since they haven't found Messiah, they've only got dim light. Okay, But the Old Testament is special revelation. But only Christians have all of God's special revelation. Now, if that bores us, if that gets off of our docket, and if that's not front row and center... What, are, what good are we in this world? How can we be salt and light if we don't go out with the only thing that we have that's unique? Okay, so we can do things that other people can do, and it's not necessarily bad. We can do things with general revelation, and we can help people solve problems, and we can teach people how to grow food and 
I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of Christians doing alms. But let us not forget the only thing we have to offer that's unique is what comes from special revelation. And the only thing that we have to offer that has the power of God unto salvation is the gospel. So if that's not on our agenda, we are salt that's worthless and good for nothing. Yes. And that's, what's, that's exactly that specific part, that unique part is what's perceived as foolishness. Yeah, exactly. And so the reason it gets off the docket is because we want to be friends with the world. All right, let's go to verse 2. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now here is a metaphor, and this is an amazing, frankly, an amazing metaphor, and I was studying, oh, excuse me, yes. There seems to be a, uh, I guess, a movement in evangelicalism relatively recently where we're going out and doing all these good works ministries, whether it's to AIDS victims or starving people and everything, we do it in Jesus' name, but that's where it ends. Yes. We don't present the gospel. We just do it in Jesus' name. Would um, you consider that to be pretty much worthless in terms of ministry? It's not worthless to do alms, but it's not the Great Commission. It's not salvific. Yes, it's not salvific. And that's... That's what I, that's one thing I said to Rick Warren. You can't have a reformation based on general revelation. He wasn't, he knew what I was talking about. He, okay, you can't do that. And his response was, well, we, Jesus told us to do good deeds. But if that's all we do, we're not doing, so are, so do a lot of other people. We're not unique. It's good for Christians to do good deeds, but we're not unique when we're doing them. And people, don't know the difference. A Christian doing good deeds, a Muslim doing good deeds, a Buddhist doing good deeds, an atheist doing good deeds, anybody in general doing good deeds, like helping the poor, helping people have food, helping try to cure AIDS, all look the same. All right? There's no way to look out there and say, okay, that, this is the right religion. You can't tell what the truth is looking at various people doing good deeds, all doing the same thing. The Christian message is a message of the cross. And if that's not preached, I don't buy the idea that if, we're, if we do more good deeds than the other people, then everybody's going to weigh the good deeds and say, okay, Christianity is the truth. Now, I would affirm this. If we do evil deeds while preaching the true message, we, uh, yeah, it's, that's offensive. Okay? If we do wickedly, which Christians have done, that is not helping. That hurts the message. But we adorn, we preach the message first and foremost and adorn the message with good deeds. Yeah, good. Yep. Great. Well, it's just that digging a well and planting lentils and going over there and, and making a village in Africa a much, much better place is just making it more comfortable from which to go to hell from. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's putting it very clear, <laughs> Rich. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, grease, the, grease the skids. But, preach the gospel. Now, this betrothal. Let's talk about betrothal. There's an interesting play on words here where it's coming from the Jewish customs, all right? And as I was researching this, it really makes an interesting analogy here with what Paul's doing. If generally people were betrothed at a young age in Jewish society, maybe 13, young, okay? Now, there's a delay, and this was a, this was a strong thing. It was a covenant. It wasn't just a pledge. or Like, like if someone is engaged in our society and the engagement gets called off, well, it's, it's sad, but it's not like the end of the world. But once you're betrothed, you're in a covenant relationship. It's binding. But you have not yet consummated the marriage, which comes later. During the period, according to the research I did here, during the period from the betrothal to the actual wedding, the father whose daughter is betrothed is responsible that she remains a virgin. He guards her from all other men. He guards her from any sullying influence 
so that when he delivers that daughter, she's a virgin. Now, Paul takes that custom and applies it to him in a Corinthian church. Now, earlier, where is Robert? Are you still in 1 Corinthians 4? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you turn the page. Look at verse 15 there and see what it says. 1 Corinthians 4, 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Okay, so Paul in 1 Corinthians said, I became your father, figuratively speaking, because I preached the gospel to you, and that's how you became a church. So now Paul's taking that same idea and bringing it over here and making an analogy. He's the father, their betrothed, to Christ. All right? And so it's his responsibility that he delivers to Christ a pure bride, spiritually. And if they go off and listen to Satan, and that's what's behind all this analogy, and receive a different spirit, or receive a different gospel, then he's failed his fatherly duty to deliver a virgin to Christ. Now she's sullied. It's a sullied church, not fit to be Christ's. It's pretty, I think it's a very striking analogy, and I think it should put the fear of God into us a little bit, or a lot. Okay, I was going to read some stuff. I thought Barnett had some very, very good material here. Um, Paul will be referring to Jewish marriage customs whereby the father was responsible for his daughter's virginity until the marriage. In the Old Testament, Israel is often spoken of as the Lord's betrothed. And remember those analogies in the Old Testament? When they go after idols, it was considered spiritual adultery. Okay, unfaithfulness to the covenant. So, critical to this verse and the next is the Apostle's portrayal as his, of his ministry as the metaphor of betrothal, a practice alien to modern Western culture. It is in all probability a paternal image whereby a father pledges a daughter in marriage to his prospective husband, taking responsibility for her virginal fidelity to her betrothed in the period between the betrothal and the marriage. The apostle's pride in his people on the day of the Lord Jesus is consistent with his marriage imagery used here, whereby a father would finally present his betrothed daughter with pride to her husband on the long-awaited wedding day. By his elaborate metaphor, Paul nearly describes, neatly describes the eschatological nature of apostolic evangelism. As a result of evangelism, a church, the betrothed, comes into being related by faith to her physically absent husband to be whom she will not see until he's appearing when the marriage is consummated. In the meantime, the father betrother is responsible for the virginal purity of the betrothed and he presents her as a pure virgin to her one husband. How outrageous, therefore, says Barnett, that outsiders should come to Corinth and sully their purity. Sully their purity. Wow. Yes. And I think if you extend the analogy to what would be the result if the bride was sullied, isn't it death equivalent to spiritual death? Yeah, what happened? Yeah, I would say, I mean, the implication is when the day comes for the marriage, Christ is going to say to a lot of people, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness, like in Matthew 7. So that's why it's frustrating to me that so many church leaders don't see these things as important. It boggles my mind that they don't see it as important. And I'm not making this up. I hear it. I don't think I'm exaggerating if you average it out over a whole year, that at least once a week I hear from somebody from somewhere in the world whose pastor doesn't care about 
any of these issues. He doesn't care what gospel's preached. He doesn't care what's taught. He, he doesn't think it matters if you bring in prayer labyrinths and the, you know, pagan practices of the world. And, and, and I heard it just this week again, and if one of the faithful flock who wants to be pure spiritually before Christ and wants to be, remain only the Lord's and not be sullied by these other spirits out there, say, Pastor, can't we have the gospel? Can't we have the Bible preached? And the answer almost universally is, you should go find a different church. Over and over again. Where are the Pauls of the world who see that the flock was born by a work of the Holy Spirit and that people belong only because they were born of a work of the Holy Spirit and that this flock is the Lord's bride-to-be. And guarding the purity of the flock is absolute job one of anybody who's responsible. I mean, if you, let's say you lived in that Jewish culture and you were the father, and you, you said to your daughter, eh, don't take it seriously, just run around with all the men in town, and you know, you got a few years, sow your wild oats, and then the marriage happens. What kind of a father would you be? Well, you'd be the worst father in the whole town. You would be disgusting. You'd be the worst possible father. Is it any better to do this spiritually? Absolutely not. Carrying on here with Barnett. Paul, as an apostle, operates within a distinct eschatological framework regarding himself as responsible for the fidelity of the church to her Lord in the period between proclamation and consummation. But what of the, what, what of the congregation already founded? It is inferred from the verse that the pastor of a congregation evangelized before by others it enters into the eschatological sweep of the ministry, diaconia, of the New Covenant, confirming and constantly repeating the gospel. Listen to this. Confirming and constantly repeating the gospel by which the church was created, as well as exhorting the believers to remain focused on Christ, as Paul does here in the Corinthians case. This is from a Bible scholar was just interpreting the passage. Isn't that amazing? Wow. These people are the Lord's. He died for them. He paid the price of his blood that they could be in his flock. There are wolves all around. There are sullying influences, spiritual ones. There are other gospels, other spirits, as he will go on to say. And all of those would threaten the purity of this bride who is the Lord's, and the Lord is jealous for his own bride. He says, I'm, I'm jealous for you because I betrothed you. This jealousy here, zelos, or zelao, zelos, noun, zelao, verb, jealousy or zeal, is used in the Old Testament for Yahweh, being filled with covenantal zeal and care and jealousy for his own people, because even in the Decalogue it says, do not have any other gods before me, do not have idols, because I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God, yes. Maybe, maybe you could relate that to what Bickle and those guys that okay. IHOP was saying, because they take that same passage and use that to actually seduce people. Yeah, I wrote an article about a, a, a group that uses what they call the bridal paradigm, and they take this same passage and they use it to teach a sensual Christianity whereby people are aroused in a wrong way trying to have a sensual relationship with God. Rather than seeing that this is a metaphor, they take it to be literal, and then they make some very disgusting things and we wrote an article about it so don't get don't listen to this bridal paradigm it has, that's not what Paul has in mind he has he has in mind the purity of the gospel and those people that's the last thing they care about is the purity of the gospel 
So all the time, seducing and sullying the church, they're talking about the bride. It's unbelievable. Yes? Um, considering these verses, I'm a little confused because it's like, is Paul addressing them as saved people or as unsaved people? All right. Because I think, well, if they're saved, then no matter what Paul does, they're going to be presented as a pure bride to him. And if they're not saved, then, then it's like he needs to do further ministry to preach the gospel to them, not talk about guarding them. That's not a, 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 a totally correct. I think that, the, uh, Patrick, you know the amazing thing about the whole Corinthian correspondence is that, they, that Paul does think they're saved. I mean, he thinks he has a real church there. And he has reason to think that because if you remember in Acts, before Paul was, had this bad experience in Athens, and he was coming to Corinth in what he called weakness and trembling, but the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said, Stay here, because I have many souls in this city. So God told Paul that, that he had his elect in, in Corinth, and so Paul should stay there and preach. So that undergirds Paul's belief that there's a real church here. Okay, Now, you're right, they will end up being part of the pure bride of Christ because God preserves all those he saves, but he uses means. And the means God is using is Paul scaring them, Paul rebuking them, Paul exhorting them, Paul writing letters to them. Okay, And I think that you can, part of the intersection, this, this comes to the whole thing of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And the way that we keep that in proper balance is always remembering the means. Okay, because if I thought, okay, I believe you people are saved because you believe the gospel, so I don't have to concern myself with anything more concerning helping you or guarding you or feeding you or looking after you because God's going to take care of all of that. <laughs> I have a feeling that if I did that, in the end, the Lord is not saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Yes. And, and Paul's not saying that everybody without exclusion in that church is saved either. There's a group of people, some of which are saved, and obviously some of which are wolves that he's, he's yeah. fighting against. So right. that the, the uh, receiving Paul's word and submitting to Paul's word and believing and obeying Paul's word is a big part of showing who's actually saved and who's not saved. Those who don't receive the message of foolishness are the perishing. Amen. Exactly. So we have God. There, the, 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 he doesn't believe these wolves are saved. He thinks they're from Satan. But he just doesn't want them to have their way with the flock. Got to guard the flock. Remember that Luther. Remember the Luther quote I, I had that if you just feed the flock and don't guard them from the wolves, the wolves will enjoy the flock nicely fattened as they devour them. You have to guard the flock. Okay. Since Paul is the initiator of the betrothal, he is to safeguard the rights of the divine husband, that's Christ. Those are Christ's rights to a pure bride. And he... Oh, I know what I was looking for. I have a... I found something interesting, Keith, about your Bickle thing. From my Word software. He warns against... Wrong sentimentality. Where, where was that? No, I'm not seeing it. I don't want to waste time. But he said we shouldn't take this in some sort of a literal, sensual way. Because that's not what Paul intended. He's talking about spiritual fidelity to Christ. Okay, let's look up uh, Dale. Uh, would you do Isaiah 54.5 and Michelle... Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. And we'll move on back here. Barb, how about Hosea 2, 19 and 20? We'll just look up some of the verses where the same imagery is used in the Old Testament. Okay, Isaiah 54 and verse 5. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Yeah, so your husband is your maker. 
So there's the idea of the marriage relationship. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Yeah, so you see that that is not just a New Testament idea. It was already something that was commonly understood in the Old Testament as well. And in Hosea 2, 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Okay, betrothal, betrothal to the Lord himself. Now, verse, let's introduce verse 3. We get, I need to, I, remind me to stop at 5 minutes to. I want to spend a little bit of time praying. Somebody said, we really have a lot of distressed people in the congregation from sicknesses. And people battling cancer and some, and, you know, just, it happens, but we have a lot, quite a few. And so somebody said, take some time at the end of your Sunday school and let's just pray for the sick. So remind me to do that. But let me introduce verse 3, because here's the danger. Here's why Paul sees a danger to this pure bride, this betrothed to the Lord, and, and the marriage is consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the parousia. 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Here is where the seduction comes. Like the serpent deceived Eve. The word deceived in the Greek, ex, ex apatao, is also used in the Septuagint of 1 Kings 22.20. Rich, could you look up 1 Kings 22.20? Same exact word in the Greek. I looked it up myself. And this word deceived has the nuance of entice. And there, see, a lot of times in the, with the Greek, a, this, a word will be used either alone or sometimes with a prefix that it intensifies it a little bit. For example, in the Septuagint of Genesis 3.13, apatao is used for how the serpent deceived Eve. But then here, the X means out of. It just sort of intensifies it a little bit to deceive out, to pull out. It's the same basic word. It's just, it just has that prefix on it. Okay, 1 Kings 22.20. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. The next verse then. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. Okay, or to deceive him. Yeah, becoming a lying spirit. Keep going. <laughs> we'll get the Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the, his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Exactly. So a, a lying spirit deceives the, the false prophets to deceive Abraham or Ahab. And this word ex apatao is used. And then, Robert, quickly go to Genesis 3.13, where apatao is used. And that's probably where Paul's pulling this from, this whole idea of, of the seduction away from God by the serpent. So the false teachers are servants of the serpent, even though they wouldn't believe that's what they are. Yes. Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Yep, apatao. The serpent did that. And that's exactly how he works. And I'm telling you right now, the serpent hasn't changed tactics. 
<laughs> Remember what Jesus said? That the devil is a liar, John 8.44, and the father of the lie, with a definite article. And in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians, Paul says that the, the people that don't believe the truth will believe the lie. And the way they will be enticed to believe the lie will be through lying signs and wonders. So people are set up for deception. And I believe that our world is set up for deception, end times deception. And let me tell you how that's happening in a dreadful way. The setup starts by the belief in relativism and pluralism. All right? The typical person in our society believes that all paths lead to God. And the typical person thinks that sincere religious belief is valid without needing any kind of verification in the real world. In other words, it doesn't have to correspond to what God actually said. All, all paths lead to God. All religions are valid. All religious truth claims are as good as any other religious truth claim. Now, in that kind of a setting where we don't believe the Bible anymore, what would happen if somebody showed up that could do real signs and wonders? Not the fake Bentley type, but the real ones. I believe Antichrist will not be doing sleight of hand. He'll be doing real ones. And it says in Second Thessalonians, it comes from the dunamis, the power of Satan. Well, they're going to believe that whatever their religion is, is validated by the science. Whatever their belief system is, is now validated by false science. And they will be deceived in the manner that Eve was deceived by the serpent, and that would be what would it look like for the church to be seduced or people to be seduced, especially here the church is in mind, and not be a suitable virgin bride for Christ.